Welcome to the podcast, Taylor. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a hard trick to follow, Dr. Hughes from Coronation Street, but here I am. Yeah, you can be our first uh, extra from neighbours uh, or home and away from down in our part of the world. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look, up front, I want to ask you, what gives you confidence in the future of cinema exhibition? I have true confidence in the future of cinema exhibition. You know, this business has been around for 100 plus years. It's an experience that you cannot replicate at home. No one can put in a big enough screen, the sound system, a crowded room full of people mm -hmm. like you can in a movie theater. There's also a core group of cinema lovers, like people love going bowling. Yep. I don't understand bowling, <laughs> but I understand cinema. And these people will always be coming back into movie theaters. One of the things that we also forget is that streaming was in the marketplace pre-pandemic. It was merely a shifting from DVD to uh, getting your content via streaming. Mm -hmm. And as we hear about all these streamers coming on board, what we have to uh, understand is that there's only going to be room for a couple of these streamers. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be some that dominate and there's other ones who are going to fall by the wayside. Yeah, I think one of the points you raised there that streaming is just the latest manifestation of watching at home uh, is one of the key ones. And, you know, one of the analogies you often hear is that every house has a kitchen, but people will still go out for the experience of a restaurant. Uh, I think in some ways you guys are a hybrid of that analogy and cinema itself because um, of your dine-in concept. Now, dine-in theatres like Studio Movie Grill aren't uniquely American, but they're they're pretty predominant to your part of the world. So I was hoping to set the scene, you could explain the concept and how SMG balances film and uh, food to, to shape the overall moviegoer experience. Yeah, that's a great question. The uh, complexity of running a cinema eatery uh, is um, unique. Mm. It is not, you're not running a restaurant, and you're not running a movie theater, and you can't just put them side by side. The one of the big differences to take into account is unlike a restaurant, we have 200 people come in sit down at one time and want to take all their orders. Mm. And if you've ever been in a restaurant when it's been busy, you know exactly what the consequences are of that is. So how do you cope with that type of type of demand? The public sees this as a movie theater and all the times from the inside out, we see ourselves as a restaurant mm -hmm. uh, because of the, the demands of, of doing a restaurant. The other key thing that uh, makes us set ourselves aside, particularly in the American market and with uh, other people in the American market like Alamo Drafthouse, Sinopolis, Cinemax, Flix Brew House, is that we're making the food fresh. So if you order a burger, it's been cooked on the grill. If you're getting a pizza, it's going through a pizza oven. Uh, unlike when I visited you know, fellow exhibitors overseas and seen that they're doing rapid heat ovens, this is the real food coming out because we have to supply food that isn't got the concept of this is just good enough for a movie theater. It has to be good enough just to go out to a restaurant. Yeah, I think that's a key point. Back in the day, you know, you'd go to one of those sorts of concepts in your part of the world or a theater down here that tries to expand the menu. And the greatest compliment you could get is that was pretty good for a cinema. But those three words can't be tacked to the end of that sentence anymore. It has to walk and talk to the standard of the broader food and dining experience. Uh, I mean, that's, that's correct because we're not just competing against other movie theaters. We're competing against other restaurants as a dining choice. And do you see that sort of bundling of film and food as um, how's that additive to getting people out of the house than just having the, the cinema itself in a dining precinct next door. How, how is the hybrid helping what you do? I think it's a great uh, kind of one-stop shop on a Friday night. You're yeah. not trying to do both. Um, we typically find it with people who have children and they have to have hired babysitters. It mm -hmm. makes a big difference. Um, the other thing is that, yes, in our competitors, you can go get a drink, uh, but you get it from the lobby. With us, you press your button, someone comes to you. That's a very nice thing to have. 
And in fact, a little piece of trivia about that with kids' movies, mm-hmm. uh, one of the popular selling drinks is frozen margaritas for the mothers. <laughs> That's brilliant. I've always liked your concept. Instead of you know the date night of dinner and a movie, dinner in a movie is a really great yeah. way to be time conscious. And, and you mentioned yes. that also with the, the babysitter. Um, look, we've, we've gone through um, a life-changing year or 18 months. How do you think the pandemic has shaped audience expectations as they start to return to cinema? I think for the core cinema audience, the cinema lovers, their expectations have not changed. Mm-hmm. I think for the casual cinema going, it has changed. And the pressure onto the movie theaters is to create an experience that is about comfort and ease. Mm-hmm. And that includes creating apps that are easy to use, seats that make people comfortable. And for some of the traditional movie theaters, they're leaning into the bigger screens, the premium large formats, and they're seeing uh, better results from those. They're giving people an experience that they definitely cannot get at home. Yeah, look, one of the things you say there that jumps out to me is if you go back, I don't know, 10 or so years, it seems like cinema would say they gave an experience when in, in reality they were talking about the unique content on the screen. It was the only place to see that story. Yeah. Everything you talk about there is within the control of the exhibitor. So even if the person doesn't love the movie, they can love the night out because of everything else that's wrapped into it. Hey, look, one of the things that we have seen, obviously, with Black Widow most recently is that shortened windows and simultaneous releases seem to be a new normal, to some degree at least. So what is SMG doing in particular to get people off the couch and away from their devices and into your theatres from, say, a marketing perspective as much as the service? You know, for us, it's all about data. Mm -hmm. It's all about digital marketing. It's all about making sure you're hitting the right customer. It's all about understanding what your customers' needs are. You know, about three years before this, uh, we started, three years before the pandemic, we really started leaning into data. Mm-hmm. This data became more readily available. People were able to process that data for us. And the other thing that we're really doing now is for Studio Movie Grill, so we're teaming up with the studios on digital marketing mm-hmm. efforts. And we're working side by side with them. And they're, they're working with us to make sure that we can target our guests uh, with the, the correct digital marketing spends. And that's a, a big one for us. But, you know, when we're talking about this, one of the things that, because this is a worldwide podcast that I want to share with people, Mm. especially as people come out of the pandemic, some of the unique headwinds that we're facing. The first one is a staffing shortage. Mm -hmm. As theaters are coming out in the US, we're having trouble finding staff. There was this concept that everyone would just come back to work. They're not. And in fact, a lot of the staff that we would have had in movie theaters have gone on to other jobs. Or alternatively, everyone's trying to hire and there's just not enough staff to go around. Restaurants, everyone's trying to hire. So we're having that. The other one is supply shortages. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and it's as simple as here we are in a Texas summer, and if our HVAC system goes down, we're six weeks lead time to get parts for some of these parts. Wow! So these are these are you know I just want to give a heads up to people coming the pandemic. These are things that we did not foresee coming, and so be prepared for it. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about globally, but in the US especially, offering ticket discounts is a bit like crossing the beams in Ghostbusters. Um, do you believe there's a place to use price as a lever to get people back into the theatres? I think it's a very uh, delicate um, pendulum there. Mm-hmm. Is that under previous ownership at Studio Movie Grill, we leaned heavily into discounting tickets. And the downside of that is that it's a, really a short-term solution. Mm-hmm. Because what you then do is that you set a mindset of the guest that that is the price of the ticket. And you start to attract a discount guest. And what we, we would find is that the, uh, the food spending of a person who bought a discount ticket 
was you know, 30, 50, yeah. 70% lower than the person who was coming in for the full movie-going experience. And we know that cinemas rely heavily on their food and beverage sales. So suddenly you're giving up a seat to people who aren't spending the money on, on food. You've suddenly also set this standard. I call it the Pizza Hut phenomenon. Mm -hmm. They always send me a coupon. So now why would I ever pay full price for pizza? It's always, what's the discount that you have at the moment? Yeah. So people are only looking for the discount. That is their expected, their, their expected price value. You know, short term, you know, if you want to do it the opening week, possibly. But if you start to extend it, it becomes a drug that it's very hard to get yourself off. If you go to use that lever, it feels like it needs to be targeted and with surgical precision as opposed to just blanket discounts for everyone. Yeah. And I did hear, I believe last week, you talked about the concept of online service fees. Mm. And, you know, that's a dilemma that I've also dealt with because we want customers' data. So why not get them to buy online? Yeah. So, um, you know, also previously pandemic under previous ownership, we did run an interesting test where we tested that if there was more expensive at the box office than a buy online, would that shift people's spending habits? Mm -hmm. And we ran that for 12 months out of one of our theaters in Florida, and it made minimal impact. Interesting. One of the things I would say, and you touched on the relationship you guys have with distribution, but generally speaking, I don't think I'm, I'm breaching any confidences to say that exhibition and distribution can sometimes have a, a contentious relationship and maybe windowing will exacerbate that, maybe not. But let's say for a second, you're the Secretary General of the United Nations of Cinema. What would you do to broker ongoing harmony, balancing the needs of both those stakeholders? You know, I think that uh, there's a dilemma that we have in the industry is we always talk about the studios, and yet they are all different, unique companies mm -hmm. with different, unique personalities, different, unique kind of uh, films, and different, unique needs. I've always felt that we're better off taking a non-confrontational approach with the, the studios mm -hmm. and try to work out what is the best the best partnership that we can we can have with them. Um, you know, when we heard of the reduction to the 45-day window and we heard exhibitors get up in arms about it, well, when you sat down with the, the big exhibitors and said, do your number analysis, a lot of them were like, actually, the grocers all come in that 45 days, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So, and the studios are dealing with the fact that after that 45 days when film's off screen, they've got this this dark zone of having a film not being anywhere that they're trying to make revenue off and that they can't market anymore, you know? Um, the other thing that we, we encounter is that studios have uh, blanket rules mm -hmm. uh, to help them manage because it's easy to have blanket rules for everyone instead of having different rules for different people based on relationships. And they also have blanket rules on films that unfortunately to me date back to 35 millimeter time, mm -hmm. such as clean schedules or things like that. Whereas would I be not be better off to show a movie like coming out this weekend, Escape Room, and give it more evening and late shows, yep. and then uh, have other films do earlier shows, you know, such as Space Jam and New Legacy, which is also coming out against it. Yeah, that's a great point. And something that I know happens quite commonly in other parts of the world, you know, you take a, an R-rated film and give it one day, two evening sessions, a kid's film will balance that screen with a an early and a late afternoon, and it optimizes the revenue for all players. So uh, I've always found it interesting that it hasn't found right. traction in the home of cinema. So I I will tell you uh, that without naming the studio, I've already had a studio come to me this year and start talking to me about that idea and allowing that to happen. Uh, it's just whether, once again, it's not one studio, it's whether the other studios say, okay, we'll clear the playing field if you do this for us. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think um, you do need to be a Secretary General of the United Nations to pull this off sometimes, but it sounds like you're yeah. making some headway there. Exhibitors are 
are always looking for uh, handouts monetarily from the studios to work out other ways to, to make it. Instead of necessarily walking into the room and saying, how do we make this a great partnership? Mm-hmm. And what do you need and what do I need and how do we succeed? Look, one of the things I want to change gears on a little bit is, as I mentioned up front, you've been a lecturer in film, marketing, distribution and exhibition for a fair while now. What are you seeing is the traits of this current, you know, future generation of, of industry professionals versus what you might have seen back in the day? I think that, you know, we, we've definitely had a change over the last 50 years from back in the days when you had the, you know, Jack Warner saying this film is going to be made, this film isn't going to be made. We had the move into the uh, corporate executives, the, you know, the type of Coca-Cola type, mm-hmm. type of crowd. Um, I think it's going to be uh, a group of people who can recognize good storytellers. Yep. It's going to be a group who understands data. It's also going to be a good group who can understand how to weave their digital strategy together into one. Um, you know, what I think about is concepts like Japanese anime. Mm-hmm. Let's take example, the Demon Slayer. Yep. You know, Demon Slayer had its series, and then after you know season one, the uh, they brought out the movie, mm-hmm. and that happens often in Japanese anime, and you have to go through through all of them. Um, Marvel's doing that right now on Disney Plus. Yep. The TV shows are there, and for me, when I watch the TV shows, I can see they're of a lower quality than the Marvel films, but they're still part of the experience. And weaving those those two together are going to be there. One of the things that we do have to work on, though, also as an industry, is what I call the data divide. Mm-hmm. It's the data that movie theaters have and the data that studios have, and working there about how we can take that data, meld it together uh, with, the, with the right teams, and combine that data together so we can do more effective marketing overall. Yeah, and I think that becomes even more compelling now because in the past, the studios had virtually nothing. Uh, the exhibitors had everything. Now you almost have two sides of the story. What does the one viewer do at home versus in theater? And how do you make sure they bounce back and forward as much as possible? Hey, look, I, I can't leave without asking you to um, recommend some of your favorite Aussie films so that we can uh, introduce the listeners to, to our part of the world. What would be your top two or three? My number one film, you know, Matt, you know this about me. I come from a family that's got a strong military history, so it's always been Gallipoli. Yeah. It's a very moving, a very important film for me. Another very important film for me is always going to be Adventure Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. It's mm-hmm. transformative. It brought joy to the screen. I'm not going to give you two or three. I'm going to give you a bunch. I'm sorry. Uh, the, Mad Max, the Mad Max trilogy, the whole series. Watch the whole series. It is fantastic. Uh, Rabbit Proof Fence. Mm-hmm. The Piano, which is a New Zealand, Australian, French, French co-production. Very important film. Baz Luhrmann's Red Curtain Trilogy, particularly mm-hmm. Strictly Ballroom, followed by Romeo and Juliet, you know, and then by Moulin Rouge, all very important films, The Proposition by Nick Cave, starring mm-hmm. Guy Pearce, a dark, dark film. And then finally, The Dry. Hey, Turlock, um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your insights. One of the reasons I wanted to have a chat to you is you, you have a broad perspective um, on our industry, from the academic to the exhibition side, uh, to understanding the other side of the fence, which doesn't happen as often as it probably should. So... Thanks for your time. Thanks for your insights. And I look forward to catching up again soon. All right. Thanks, you, man. Awesome.